those cross conversations now are going to result in incredibly juicy solutions. Hi, I'm Vicki Robin. In partnership with the Post Carbon Institute, I'm hosting short to the point conversations with diverse cultural scouts, asking each one the same question, what could possibly go right? The invitation is to see through these wise eyes what is opening up in the present moment as normal is upended and next is not at all clear. These conversations were recorded a few months into the pandemic and in the weeks following the murder of George Floyd. Let's see what today's guest says. Hi, we're here again with what could possibly go right. And I'm here today with Carolyn Raffensperger, whom I admire immensely, and I'm glad Carolyn's here. Uh, I'm gonna do a little bio. Carolyn uh, Raffensperger is an MA and a JD and Executive Director of the Science and Environmental Health Network. And as an environmental lawyer, she specializes in the fundamental changes in law and policy necessary for the protection and restoration of public health and the environment. She's at the forefront of developing new models for government that depend on these larger ideas of precaution and ecological integrity. And Carolyn, thinking about talking to you today, uh, the Christopher Fry poem came to mind and I, you don't have to address it. I just wanna say, thank God our time is now when wrong comes up to meet us everywhere never to leave us until we take the longest stride of soul we ever took. Affairs are now soul-sized. And when I think of you, I think of somebody who, who sort of is, is a soul-sized being in the affairs of the world, you know, really with a very holistic perspective. So very eager to hear your reflections on our question of what could possibly go right. Oh, well, you know, uh, in our earlier conversations, we've talked a little bit about some of the work that I've done and uh, the moment that we're in with the pandemic and with the ugly wounds of racism having been exposed uh, for all the world to see um, reminds me of, in part, why I got into the work that I do um, uh, early on. And I'm going to tell a little story of my father, who is a surgeon, and he's a pediatric surgeon and um, worked in Chicago at the large public hospital in, in Chicago. And um, he came home one day and said that there was a large increase in certain kinds of childhood tumors and birth defects. And he's the world's expert on many of those. And he said that the environment had caused those uh, problems that he was seeing, and they were increasing. Now, having grown up in a religious household, uh, you know, the problem of pain and why there's suffering in the world is related to God and can God prevent it and all of that. But this looked like it was preventable suffering. And I asked my dad why did he didn't do something about it. And he said that he couldn't prove it. And from that moment on, uh, I dedicated a lot of my energy to figuring out what we could do to prevent suffering. And the work that I've done on the precautionary principle, this idea that you take action in the face of scientific uncertainty and the likelihood of harm, 
um, uh, seemed like it was absolutely quintessentially preventing suffering. So we might not be able to prove uh, exact cause and effect for how toxic chemicals were going to um, cause birth defects or childhood tumors. We could not prove uh, exact cause and effect with what was going to happen with climate change, but we knew bad things were going to happen. And a lot of the work that I've done is in public health, knowing that some of these are very slow moving disasters. Uh, toxic chemicals, climate change are relatively slow moving disasters until they're not. Um, the kinds of pandemics that we see that are related to the environment are uh, surprising, but should not have been. And so the work that, that I've been involved in for a long time was involving governments of all sizes and shapes, uh, working with the city of San Francisco and the county of San Francisco, um, California EPA, various governments across the country and around the world on this idea of the precautionary principle since it made sense that if government was responsible as the fiduciary for these things that we share and for public health, you know, it has a fiduciary duty to the public to care for public health, then it seemed like the precautionary principle was the, you know, the tool that they needed to fulfill that duty. And everywhere I went, uh, government agencies and their, the, the people who worked for them would often cry when I would talk about the precautionary principle and not be allowed to carry it out. And the reason was that they had to balance competing interests. And what that meant was they could not get in the way of the economy. And if, they, if there was any other way they could do something, that meant that we would sacrifice children's lives we would sacrifice children's brains. We would allow some breast cancer that was preventable. We would uh, ignore racism and problems that disproportionately affected uh, communities that had already suffered the brunt of environmental problems, of racism, of poverty, and just too bad. And why was that? So I set out to answer that question and began looking at why government was making really bad choices. Choices that looked evil, pathological, on their face. So I'll tell you one. Um, I've been working uh, on pipelines forever. So a lot of you may know about the Dakota Access Pipeline and Standing Rock. I was a lawyer up at, at Standing Rock off and on for that whole summer of 2016, the month of August, I was there. And they rerouted that crude oil pipeline from near Bismarck, which was primarily a white community, and moved it just north of the Standing Rock Reservation, full of indigenous people. Threatened the water of, of the indigenous community, but not the white community. Another one, pipeline that's going through Minnesota. They put in the state environmental impact statement that that pipeline, especially during the construction, would increase sex trafficking, especially among the indigenous community. And they approved it. Enbridge Line 3, carrying tar sands from Canada through Minnesota 
and the wild rice beds they knew posed a risk to the indigenous food supply of wild rice, and they knew it would increase sex trafficking, according to the state's own documents, and they approved it anyway. And I think that what the pandemic has shown is that decisions that government make that are pathological, that do not protect the public health, the well-being of people and all people, that those have to stop. And what I see in this remarkable moment is that we have an opportunity to rethink um, how we're going to govern from the bottom up. And uh, all this work that's been done on police, on prisons, on the environment, on climate and fossil fuels, we get to rethink all of that. And so it feels to me like a year of jubilee that we're going to forgive the debts. We are going to, we have the opportunity to forgive debts, to rethink that. And there are some debts that should not be forgiven. Our debt to our black brothers and sisters should not be forgiven without some reparations. But the debts that we have forced them to incur by uh, dint, I'm not, I was not by virtue, but by dint of really bad policies that increased suffering. Seems to me we get to rethink those. So we know the healthcare system is a complete mess. We know that our public health system, which is really different, you know, we've made uh, healthcare basically an individual matter rather than realizing that we are all connected. And so we know that uh, our energy system's falling apart, uh, fossil fuels, and that's a good thing. Um, fossil fuels can just go bye-bye. We're not going to miss them. Uh, we've got lots of other ways of living out our world. We know that um, our justice system is fundamentally broken now. Um, and we get to rethink that. And that is a wonderful opportunity. And what I know is that my fellow activists across so many spheres have been doing very important work on these over a long period of time. So we have this bank of wonderful solutions. And the trick is going to be, the, the, what we get to do now is to have the cross conversations. And that's what I see happening, racism and the environment. Um, we're, we're getting to have conversations about how prisons um, and environmentalists, uh, the, the, the whole prison industrial complex just stole some of our, our natural areas. And then we're put in communities that, um, you know, if that was the only job source that we could provide for some communities, you know, we've got another, we've got to think through this again, got to use a lot more imagination. But it's these cross-cutting issues now that we've never, ever had. Uh, well, maybe we've had, I think people have been working at it. But now they're broken open um, and we like, like the, the chocolate egg. And we get to see some of the magic and sweetness inside. That's so I'm very excited. Yeah, that's an amazing frame to call this a jubilee moment. And um, do you, you know, what percent do you think is that aspirational? And what do you think is actually, where do you see that happening right now? I, you know, just like even more specifics about are there, 
you know, intersection, you know, where do you see the intersectionality happening right now that surprises you? Um, I, I think that uh, the, the overarching frame of racism has shifted our picture. I have an amazing uh, painting of Frida Kahlo. And until it had a frame around it, you couldn't see her. It was uh, very ornate and you could not see her until there was a frame. And I think that what happened with uh, George Floyd's death is that all of the dots all of a sudden coalesced in co a coherent picture. And then the, the list of birders, black birders trended on Twitter. And so we saw the extraordinary talent and gifts of black uh, people who were doing these amazing things in nature, who were uh, uh, ornithologists and studying birds. We saw um, a, a theater. We saw how uh, race-based theater was. Um, so there were just these endless conversations where the frame shifted how we looked at almost every single issue. And um, I, think, I think that as we begin to look at um, how we have built this whole government, this whole system on economics and the kind of capitalism um, and how it's interlaced with racism and how that economic system then impacts the environment and how we would sacrifice public health, um, all of those children's brains and breast cancer and asthma and all those other things that have an environmental component and um, completely uh, we saw them as individual ideas. I think until this frame came up and we are beginning to put together uh, government, race, um, uh, and economics and all of the things that flow from those. So I think it's a very uh, exciting time for people who've been working on solutions detail by detail by detail. Uh, 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 universal basic income now is a real life possibility what would that do for that economic system and uh, the conversations around race? Um, we would rethink debt. We would rethink a whole lot of things. And um, so uh, I think it's going to spark new conversations, um, you know, that go in multiple directions and then create a whole new picture. So one thing I've been working on for the last uh, two years is to examine state budgets under two theories of government. So if one theory of government is that the state of Iowa is only supposed to grow the economy, then you're going to throw money at Apple. You're gonna throw money at Google. You're going to give them tax incentives. You're gonna give them tax credits. You're going to you know, do all of these things. So just uh, parenthetically, we are defunding the public universities in Iowa and giving tax credits and even writing checks to businesses like Apple when they do research. So we are supporting private research that will make those companies richer. And so if your theory of government is the government's main job is to uh, grow the economy, 
you are not going to support things like universal basic income. You are not going to support public education um, for anything other than, you know, creating people who are little cogs in that machine. You are not going to support public health. You are going to have everybody funneled off into the individual healthcare system. But if your view of government is that it is to take care of all the things that we share, mm -hmm. roads, libraries, uh, parks, um, public health, key, central, then you're going to have a different budget. You're going to have, and money is how governments do things. And so if you construct a budget where you're going to primarily support economic growth, you are going to defund all the things that contribute to well-being. And in the end, the reason that uh, people weren't going to adopt the precautionary principle at California EPA, they did in part, or US EPA, um, is because they're not going to get in the way of industry and business. But if we rethink what government is for, and this is the perfect opportunity to do it, to yeah. say a goal of the goal, a primary goal of government is to promote the well-being of its people. It is to prevent the preventable suffering. And that as a first order of business, that is what we're going to do. How different um, things would flow would we have uh, the kind of violence-based militarized police that we now have? Would we, um, would we primarily invest public dollars in private corporations to make vaccines that people don't trust because of that you know, one-way flow of money? Is, is that really how we would do it? And so this time period is uh, a time to step back and ask much bigger questions. And I'm watching um, allies and friends in climate, in public health, um, in uh, the uh, folks who are working on poverty. They said poverty is optional. It's a choice that we made. We don't have to have poverty. Um, those cross conversations now are going to result in incredibly juicy solutions. Yeah, I can just hear people who've listened to you carefully start every testimony at city, county, and state level around any issue. The role of government is the well-being of the people now that we've, and, and preventing preventable harm. Now that we've established that, here's my testimony. You know, it's like, it's like you've, you've, you've set a different frame. And I love, I love what you said about racism, the, the fact that this racist issue the stain on our soul has come to the fore. It's like the missing piece that would not allow us to focus on what's really going on. Because as soon as you focus, you see something you don't want to see. And so I love this image of the Frida Kahlo frame. You know, the, the frame of racism has actually brought so much else into focus and made it possible to look at it squarely and to recognize that you, you can make a different story. It's like, it's ours to do. It, it's, almost like, it's, like, it's almost like once you, once you uh, repent, if you will, you know, once you recognize, oh my God, I knew better and I didn't do better. But now I see what I did 
and I can see that I can do better. You know, that basically change of heart and mind, the release, actually, the forgiving of the debt that you carry inside yourself for your own blindness, willful blindness. You know, it's just very interesting, the intersection of the things that you're bringing. And this is like going to have to be a wrap, but it's, um, I just think it'd be so, I think I just really recommend people follow your work. And uh, also this, the you know, you, you glanced over the precautionary principle, but I, I think people really need to understand what that principle is. So, I mean, give us one minute on where did that idea come from? Was that a label that you formed? And what specifically is the sentence that describes it? And then we'll have to close. The precautionary principle stands for the idea that you take action to prevent harm, even in the face of scientific uncertainty. And so there are ways to do it. You set goals. What kind of world do we want to live in? Do we want to keep increasing uh, incarceration? Do we want to increase uh, breast cancer? When you watch those trend lines, you set a goal to reverse those. And then you figure out ways to meet them. You look for all the alternatives, alternative ways to solve a problem and meet your goals. You reverse the burden of proof. Why is it that we allow uh, the fossil fuel industry to make claims uh, the burden should be on them um, to, that they cannot add to the cumulative impacts in a, an already disenfranchised community. Um, and uh, we need a complete democratic participation. And one of the things that I didn't mention is that we have to have government with the free prior and informed consent. And this is the community right of consent. The UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People say that the indigenous people have the right of free prior and informed consent before something happens to affect their future. And as part of the precautionary principle, the community knows best about how to prevent the kind of harm that we've been seeing. Perfect. Wow. Thank you so much, Carolyn. 